Physics World. Happy New Year, everyone. I'm James Dacey, and welcome to the first Physics World podcast of 2016. Now, I don't know about you, but after all that Christmas fun, January can feel like quite a dark and sombre month, if you live in the Northern Hemisphere at least. So I'm hoping the musical theme of this podcast can shake off a bit of that gloom. You'll hear the thoughts on this topic of Bronwen Karnacki, whom you just heard there performing her song, River Meander. She's a geoscientist and singer-songwriter who recorded a version of the song, especially for this podcast. I caught up with Bronwyn recently in San Francisco at the annual meeting of the American Geophysical Union. Bronwyn believes that the life of a scientist and the life of a musician share more similarities than you might think. For a start, they're both highly creative pursuits that can enable you to travel the world. But also on the negative side, when it comes to the people who make up these fields professionally, they both face challenges with diversity. But first, though, she talked about her double existence as a scientist and a musician. I'm a postdoctoral fellow, and I'm jointly based between Oregon State University and the University of Colorado. And uh, I'm a paleoclimatologist, which means that I study climate change, but I look at it from a geologic long-term perspective, and I think about um, how some of the processes that we're seeing today might be relevant in the past and vice versa, how we might be able to learn from the past to think about changes that are happening now. Bronwyn's also a guitarist and singer who performs solo with her band, The Swamp Birds. The music has a laid-back country feel and they regularly play live at folk festivals. With music, I actually didn't really start playing music until I was about 23 maybe, so pretty late compared to you think of a lot of guitarists, you know, start mm. playing when they're nine years old in the, mm. their parents' basement, and I wasn't one of those people. But I started learning guitar and writing songs and just, it was after I had finished college and was already planning on going to grad school, but um, so I kind of knew I was going down the science path. But once I discovered music and how much I loved it, I just knew I had, that had to be part of my life as well. Every once in a while, the two passions of Bronwyn's life overlap and some of her lyrics are inspired by science. The song you hear at the start of the podcast, for instance, contains what Bronwyn referred to as fluvial geomorphology metaphors describing the search for a romantic partner in terms of a river meandering through a floodplain. Here's another clip from that song. Where do you, so typically you know, you've written a song, an educational song, do you then go and play that live at a conference or where, where would you, where's your forum, where's your stage? I've played it, yeah. I've played it at, at here at the American Geophysical Union fall meeting. We have an open mic every year for the last five years. So I've played them at, at those, um, which is a very specific audience full of other, <laughs> other geoscientists yeah, who are <laughs> interested in something yeah. creative. I have played... Um, the a couple of songs at other open mics before, yeah. and with my my band, um, my old band, I have 
started to play them with them as well. And they, they always refer to me as Dr. Rock, which <laughs> is endlessly amusing to anybody, the rock pun. <laughs> Everybody likes puns. <laughs> in Bronwyn's case, the science often appears in her lyrics figuratively. But over the past few years, there's also been a fashion among scientists for making songs that explain science more directly and describe what it's like to be a scientist. One of the most famous of these was the LHC rap produced in 2008 by particle physicists at CERN around the time of the initial switch-on of the Large Hadron Collider. 27 kilometers tunnel underground designed with minus and protons around a circle that crosses through Switzerland and France 60 nations contribute to scientific advance two pieces of protons swing round through the ring they ride till in the hearts of the detectors they're made to collide and all that energy packed and such a tiny bit of room becomes mass particles created from the vacuum and then oh yeah LHCBs is where the animators gone Alice looks at collisions of lead ions CMS and Atlas are two of a kind the LHC rap now has a staggering 8 million views on YouTube. It was written and performed by Kate McAlpine, who now works in the communications team at the University of Michigan's College of Engineering in the US. When I contacted Kate recently, she told me about the tons of messages she received from teachers asking for copies of the song to play in their class and the interest that it sparked among their students. So I asked Bronwyn whether she thinks these songs can attract more students into science careers. I think that it's too soon to tell, really. I, mm. I'm really hoping that somebody out there does a kind of quantitative study to show the impact of these videos, because I think, you know, videos going viral on YouTube and people starting to showcase their creative talents from the scientific perspective is a really new thing. It's, you know, just a few years, it seems like, yeah, yeah. to me anyway. And so I'm not really sure what the numbers end up being, but I think it's, it's really helpful for showing what the real face of science is to the public. Because normally when people think of what does a scientist look like, they picture a guy in a lab coat staring at a beaker full of green bubbling liquid. And <laughs> while there are, a lot of, you know, there are some people who do that and look like that, and that is what they do on a day-to-day -day basis, it's not at all what most of us look like and what most of us are doing. And so the, the music videos are a really good way of showing people who is actually involved in science and that they are normal people. They're not robots, they're <laughs> not cyborgs, they are just normal people who can also dance maybe poorly <laughs> <laughs> and sing maybe poorly, but they do yeah. it. Do you, do you have like a favorite out of all those songs that have been released? Um, I'm really partial to uh, Richard Alley's Ring of Fire mm. parody. <laughs> That's one of my favorites. He, he goes through and explains the Pacific Ring of Fire. Production is a burning thing. It needs a fiery ring. Hold its ocean floor will soon retire. Down through the metal for a ring of fire. Subduction scrapes off mud round a burning ring of fire. Water down drives the volcano's higher Makes light and decide From a ring of fire Well, yeah, I suppose sort of actual professional pop stars I and mean, over the years quite a few of them have been inspired by science, if you like David Bowie singing about space mm -hmm. and there was wasn't one of the um, 
members of Queen has a PhD yeah, in Brian, Brian May. Yeah, yeah. So he, yeah, he's um, he was a guitarist of Queen, right. and exactly. I think after you know having sort of started science, then gone off to become this global rock star. He's he's actually gone back now, and he, I think right. he completed his PhD, and he's he does, he does quite a bit of um, science outreach. So, right. I mean, do, do you think? I mean, people like that are they? really important as kind of role models you think they, they sort of to show that you can have these sort of both interests you can be really into the music and the science do you think that really that, that can really I think we still need interest? a critical mass of those people mm. I think that those people um, often the public and other scientists we look at them and think oh they're sort of an anomaly you know they're mm. just somebody who happens to have a creative brain and a scientific brain all wrapped up in the same head and that's that's great for them and how cool but I'm going to move on and go back to my lab now mm. and I think once we have more people who are um, able to showcase their talents and show how involved they are in both fields, I think the better. Now, it's one thing to say that you can be a musician and a scientist, even if you don't quite hit the levels of superstardom reached by Brian May. But surely the lives of professional scientists and those of professional musicians are worlds apart, right? Well, according to Bronwyn, they're more similar than you might think. First of all, I think there's a lot more scientists out there than, than we would think that are musicians. Hmm. And, or who are um, artists or creative people, and they often have these closeted talents that they don't share with anyone, but then when they come out and share them, they find that there's all kinds of people around who also share the same interests. And so I think creativity is something that doesn't first come to mind when somebody thinks about, when a kid is thinking about what does a scientist do? They don't usually think, well, a scientist is a creative person. But that is what we do. That's, that's everything what we do. A good scientist is an extremely creative person. So I think they actually, they go together really nicely. Yeah, I guess so. Over the years, there's been quite a few scientists who have played music. Like Einstein's a famous example. Right. And, you know, more recently, people like Brian May, Brian Cox. Right. I mean, f- for you, do you think that playing music actually somehow helps the science, or vice versa? Is there some, you know, whether that's at some deep level or whether it's just, just you know, some kind of um, means of relaxing when you're not doing the science? I mean, how do you think they help each other? Being a scientist and approaching music from the, the perspective of somebody who's used to working in a lab with deadlines and with very uh, clear goals is really helpful because I think it helps to focus the musical conversation that that people are having. You throw a bunch of people into a room and you start playing and it's really nice if you have a few little guidelines that you want to set out there. Uh, You know, jazz works that way. You have a, you know, you either have a few chord progressions everybody knows or you have something that can root you. Hmm. And then once you have that root, you can just freeform, be very creative on top of it which is really how science works. That's the same way. You know, you have a question, you go into the lab, you have a particular hypothesis you want to test or you have some technique you like to use. You start using it. Everything is different from how you thought it would be and then you just go with it. Now, I think it's fair to say that despite the exceptions, the classic image of the rock star over the years has been associated with white men. The same, it has to be said, is true of scientists, particularly in physics, where various groups are still underrepresented. Related issues exist in the UK. The Institute of Physics, which publishes Physics World, runs a diversity and inclusion programme to work towards making a more inclusive physics community. You can find out more about the issues in the UK and their work by visiting iop.org. But from her experience in the US, Bronwyn believes that underrepresentation in science and music could share some similar roots. There is some overlap. There is, I mean, the music industry is totally its own thing, but... There are a lot of similar, there's a lot of similarities in the way that we think about how kids are socialized. 
And especially with rock and roll, you know, we, you look around in a guitar shop and you see posters of guys playing guitars, right? And you don't really see a lot of imagery out there in the media or in music stores or anything of, mm. of women or people of color. You don't, you don't see that. It's not something that is uh, really promoted that much, even though those people are out there and they're mm. playing and they're great. So I think in that same way, we don't really see a lot of um, people of color or women scientists being featured in public spaces where we would expect them to be featured. So there's, there's some invisibility, I think, in both fields. There's a lot of cultural messaging around what, what a rock and roller is mm. and um, what they do and who's welcome in that community. And all you have to do is pick up a guitar pedal. And a lot of the time, guitar pedals have these very racy <laughs> images of women on them and so you immediately get an impression of who is and is not the target audience here okay. <laughs> and I think it's the same with science a lot of the time you you um, a lot of women have trouble finding mentors who look like them and who have their same life history and it, there's a lot of similarities there so they're very different but I think the fields could really learn from each other beyond just hoping that things will change I mean what what can be done practically to to address those things I mean has anything been done in in the music industry that, that could be borrowed by science? At least there has been a really big movement within um, the female music community in a lot of different cities around the US and in Europe especially to start to combat these uh, cultural messages about who can and can't play music at a really early age. And so and I've been working for a few years now volunteering with a couple of different organizations uh, that are rock and roll camps for girls. And they start from, from the get-go, from day one of camp. They start teaching girls, what are the messages that you're receiving? Let's try to be aware of what these messages are, and now let's unlearn them. So, so what, what, what kind of things do people do in these camps? You, you go along for a week, you stay there, and is there, are you playing a lot of music, or is mm -hmm. it more about the socializing and the talks and that kind of thing as well? Yeah, so every, every rock camp is different, um, but they all have pretty similar approaches. They're, they're usually targeted for girls starting at either age 8 or 10, somewhere around there, through about 18. So it's girls who are in their very early adolescence all the way through the end of their teenage years. And it's a day camp. They don't, they don't stay over. They come every day. And um, they don't have to have any musical background at all. And so when they're applying to camp, they can choose an instrument. They choose um, drums, bass, guitar, vocals, um, beats, or keyboards. And sometimes there's another few instruments they can choose. And on the first day, they do this sort of uh, speed dating type of exercise where they meet other people and list who they want to be in a band with. And there's some, some uh, behind the scenes uh, working that goes on to form those bands. And so they form bands on day one. They name their bands. They start writing a song, an original song. And at the end of the week, they perform it. Oh, so cool. during the week, they are receiving instrument instruction. They have group lessons. And they have band practice. And so those lessons and those practices are very much moderated by adults being there, but the, mm. the adults aren't there to tell them what to do. They really just start facilitating their creative process. Cool. Uh, people sort of have been to those camps. Have they gone on to, to do music as a, as a career or you know, at least kind of continue playing it as a, as a hobby? Yeah, a lot of them have. A lot of them have gone on to play music as a career. I mean, the thing is, with when you're starting with such young people, the, the first camp was, you know, a decade ago, and so it's not we have to wait a little while longer to see what the, what the impacts really are after they hopefully go to college and, and finish with that. But a lot of them do go on to continue playing music. Um, they also go on to, even if they never touch an instrument again, they go on to be at least aware of cultural messages that are mm -hmm. sent to them, which are going to also apply to things like math or science. Mm. So, so you think that potentially science could 
borrow this idea and, and sort of run science camps where yeah it's a similar approach of facilitating uh, people to do science and you know breaking down those stereotypes yeah I really yeah. I really think science could have a lot to learn yeah I mean, do, do those kind of things exist already are, are there to your knowledge are there sort of science camps that take there a similar are. approach there's a couple of camps I've heard of that um, I think there's one called I think it's called girls on ice and it's uh, in the Pacific Northwest and they take girls out into it's a mountaineering camp but it's really the science of mountains and mm. they go out and do some mountaineering and I think that kind of program is really similar in that it's, if I'm remembering correctly, it's free or it's very inexpensive. Mm-hmm. And so there's not a lot of economic barriers to joining. And there's women who are coaching them the whole way. And so there's, I think there are examples out there. So that was Bronwyn Karnacki there talking about music and science and some of the challenges shared by the two industries. Special thanks also to Kate McAlpine and Richard Alley for sending me their songs. Bronwyn's band, The Swamp Birds, are currently working on an album, which they say should be finished by the end of this year, so keep an eye on their Facebook page for details of that. So I hope this has uh, cheered you up, despite the fact that it's still January. (laughs) Uh, We're going to play you out today with uh, a sneak preview from that album. It's a track called Be My Vagabond, with Bronwyn singing lead vocals and playing one of the guitars. World.